Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, everybody. And uh, whether you're joining us on the live stream or you're right here in our building on our campus here, I just want to say welcome to Sunday morning at Sunridge Community Church. So glad that you guys are here or you're tuning in. You can have a seat. We're going to do something different today. Um, We are kind of like mulling uh, a passage of scripture over and over for five weeks total uh, from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, and I want us to read it together. You can, you can remain stand, or sitting, remain standing, sitting, uh, whatever it is you're doing, and uh, I want us to read it together rather than our usual um, tradition of having a reader. Let's read together, okay? For Christ's love compels us, Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers then, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the, name of my favor I heard, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Thanks. I want to encourage you guys to read this passage of Scripture every week. Just spend a few moments, one time a week, reading it so that we can just kind of sit in it and think about the thoughts that come from these words in Paul's letter. Before I get started today, I want to tell you we have super special guests today. I have tried since I became the lead pastor here to keep it a secret that I used to be a firefighter. (laughs) And um, today, and you'll see why, I have in attendance my first crew that I worked with in the fire department. So Don, Captain Don Easton, would you stand up? Engineer Barry Fox, where's Barry? Stand up, Barry. And rookie firefighter Britt Seip. These guys um, raised me from a pup and made me the dog I am today. So, so honored to have uh, 
these guys and their families here today and uh, absolutely, actually going to be baptizing my captain and his wife later today. So we'll tell you that story. I'm super stoked. Yeah. And some others. Okay. So in 1968, elementary school teacher Jane Elliott conducted what became a famous experiment with her students in, in the days closely after the assassination of Martin Luther King. And what she did is she divided her room by eye color. And the brown-eyed kids were told, You're, you are better than the others. So you are in the in-group. And then the blue-eyed children were told, you're less than the others, especially the brown-eyed children. And so you are the out-group. And suddenly what happened was the former classmates that had once played so happily together on the playground are now taunting and torturing one another. And the, by the way, the blue-eyed children were just as quick to attack the brown-eyed children once those roles were reversed. So since Elliot's uh, experiment, researchers have conducted thousands upon thousands of studies to understand this in-group, out-group response. And you, they, they, scientists have used uh, functional MRIs to study which part of our brains light up when perceiving a member of the out-group for us. And here's what they discovered about how we see the out-group. Number one, we're more likely to see the members of our groups as unique and individually motivated, and more likely to see a member of the out-group as the same as everyone else in that group. In other words, the out-group, they're all the same. We have stereotypes about them. Secondly, they learned that our amygdala, that part of our brain that processes anger and fear, is more likely to become active when we encounter someone from the out-group. And then last, the more we perceive this person outside our group as a threat, the more willing we are to treat them badly. See, scientists have discovered that our brains have developed in, in such a way, <clears throat> excuse me, that we, our brains sort people into categories. So just think about the issues in America today that divide us. Think about your in-group and your out-group. When you think of these things, appearance, the attractive factor, body shape, clothing, about our perception of someone's wealth or their education, about someone's race or ethnicities, or about their religion. And then what about the their views that they hold on like things like immigration or guns or abortion, sex and gender issues or politics? Think about how you think about those groups. You say, okay, Britt, our brains categorize people, and that divides us. If our brains are designed to do that, then what's the big deal? Well, I don't know if it's just me, but does it seem to you that things are different today? Does it seem like our differences in, in, in a time gone by used to be more like a sports fanaticism. We're rooting for our team. But today, it's become more like a war mentality. We don't just root for our team and against those who have different views. We're enemy combatants. And you, some of you are like, okay, well, that's the way the world is. But here's the question. What's a Christian supposed to do? How are we supposed to think about all these things? 
And how do we, as people who name the name of Jesus, who say that we're going to follow Jesus in his teachings, how do we respond to this? Now, we're in a series, if you're joining us today, we've called REACH. It's an acronym. Recognize each as Christ has. And it's from this passage that we read this morning. And last week, Jed kicked it off by talking about how when we become a Christian, we are a new creation, that God has done something within us, and he continues to do this new thing in us. And often what he's doing in us is the opposite of what our natural human impulse is of what our brain wants us to do, God is constantly reshaping us into becoming this new creation. You know, we become new immediately in our conversion. Positionally, when, we, when you confess Christ, you, we're completely forgiven, and we start afresh as a new person, born again, Jesus called it. But God spends a lifetime, our lifetime, reshaping us into that reality. And today I want you to see uh, one of the ways that we are being made new, that we're being made the new creation. And it's in how we view others. In verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul wrote, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What does that mean? To regard someone from a worldly point of view. Does he mean that, well, some people are worldly and other people are spiritual? Well, that's true, but that is not what Paul's talking about. Paul isn't talking about the character of the people involved. He's talking about the observer's perspective of other people. And he is saying that regardless of who people are, converted or not, good or not, nice or not, in our group or not, There are different ways to view people, different lenses to look through. To regard from a worldly point of view is literally, in in the Greek original, it says, according to the flesh. We regard no one as according to the flesh. What does that mean? Well, number one, it means to view others as merely the physical representation of themselves. The physical representation of themselves. It's to size people up and assign value to them solely from their physical presence, their muscle, their skin, who they are in their human body. It's to view others with the standards and values that are derived solely from a physical orientation of the world. It's only what you see with your eyes, their body shape, their skin color, our our perception of their intelligence or their wealth or their, their attractiveness. We talk in in the Christian community of secular thinking, which which means like without God. It's to think without God. It's godless thinking. To regard someone then from a worldly point of view is to consider them through a secular lens, to actually to think of them in a godless way. To regard others from a worldly point of view is also to have a what's in it for me focus in the relationship and seeing instead of seeing them through God's eyes it's what's in it for me I see people in in terms of their transactional value to me what do they bring to me and if from my perspective you serve little purpose or you serve an opposite purpose of me then you serve no value you have no value to me then and our secular brains as we mentioned we sort people 
by their value to us. We either like them right now or we don't. They're like us or they're different. They're attractive or not. They're useful to us or not. And therefore, they have value to us or not. Last, to regard someone with a, from a worldly perspective is to view others without regard of their soul or their spirit. To regard them without considering their soul or their spirit. According to the Bible, we are both physical and spiritual beings. Believing in the soul is a Christian distinctive. It's the part of us that connects to God. It's the part of us that lives in eternity. It's a part of us that is activated by the Holy Spirit in conversion. And the Bible contrasts the, a worldly or fleshly orientation with one of the Spirit. And Paul, in his writings, often distinguished the difference between the works of the flesh and what he called the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, he describes that difference as a war that wages inside of us. In Galatians 5.16, Paul writes, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. You see this battle going on. And the, uh, and the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. In other words, this way of seeing the world is different. And this way of seeing the world is not an automatic that happens upon conversion. God doesn't put a new Sims card in you when you become a Christian. And then voila, you're like Jesus. It's as Paul says in Romans 12 that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's a process. And that is part of becoming the new creation that Paul talks about. And he goes on here to describe what these acts of the flesh are, these worldly things that a person who lives according to the flesh are. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. Bad stuff, right? But then he goes on, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. And then in verse 21, he goes on, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. This list shows the end products, the results of life without the Spirit of God. You guys have heard that saying, you know, like with a sandwich, it's, you know, it's surrounded by bread, but it's what's in the middle that counts. Did you notice that in Paul's kind of list of works of the flesh, that there were kind of like some big things on the front end and on the back end, but then some surprises in the middle that it's like, those things made it on this list? Let's look at it again. We know what it was surrounded by, but right in the middle... Paul mentions hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Then Paul draws a contrast for us in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, that is the, the work or the result, the product of having the Spirit in our lives, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if the acts of the Spirit are so dramatically different 
different acts, different motivations, different core values. Doesn't it make sense that when someone becomes a Christian, how we regard others will be vastly different depending on whether we are under the control of the flesh or of the spirit. Whether we are walking countercultural to how the secular world operates. It's a completely different value system. So what's a Christian to do about that? Paul continues, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, as a Christian, we have a choice. You and I have a choice every day, moment by moment, whether we're going to walk to a different motivation, the Spirit, which gives us a new regard for how we view others. Now, look at what Paul wraps this up with, what conclusion we're to draw from living and viewing others from a spiritual place rather than a worldly place, verse 26. So let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Once again, can you see how the being spirit-filled under the control of the Holy Spirit results in an entirely different perspective, viewpoint, conceited, full of myself and, my, and myself only, provoking, which, me, which literally means without regard. It's I'm going to challenge and provoke and, con, and seek to control and confront others from the basis of my own self-conceit and then envying, of course, if I'm, if I'm motivated by my own thoughts and values, then I'm going to be constantly comparing who's in my group and who's in the out group. And I know that I have to win at all costs. And this is a competition and the, comp the competitors must be defeated. You see, Becoming a new creation, it's not just a change of our final address in eternity or even just a doctrinal belief, a new way of believing. The conversion that occurs in the new creation is more than a soul conversion. God also converts our criteria for evaluating others. He converts our criteria for evaluating others. We often think of conversion as being uh, it's something we change our belief about God, and it is. But it's not just an acknowledgement of God's existence. Uh, James tells us that the devil believes in God and trembles. But this conversion is also a process that reorders our priorities, and it revises, it revises our perspectives. That's the new creation work that God wants to do in us. And you know, I don't know about you, but for me, that has meant a lot of changes. Some, some changes in my behavior and activities, and other changes in my values, even what I do on Sunday morning. God converts the way we regard people. And in a sense, God is undoing some of our humanness. 
Social scientists say that one of the reasons our brains have developed the ability to sort is it gives us identity. We love to belong to groups because it gives us, this is who we are. We're in this group. And our brains are wired to align ourselves in those groups and to give labels to those other people. Are they like me? Are they not? What is their appearance like? What is their race? What nationality are they? What are their religious and political ideologies? Because when we do that, it reinforces our sense of self. This is our group. That is their group. And we define ourselves through into, into groups. We place ourselves into groups based on our shared values and beliefs. That's, that's a human thing to do. But it also... Um, we also identify ourselves in opposition to those other groups. And this is actually, this is a human trait, you guys. This is what, this is what we're, our, our minds and our bodies want to do. But Jude warns us, check this out, this little one-chapter book in your New Testament. He warns us that our, in verse 19 of Jude, people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit, that the, these are people who are converted, who still follow their old instincts without the Spirit. It's one of the most natural things, most human things about us. It makes us human. And the need to divide is a natural human instinct, Jude says, without the Spirit. The first century church experienced this. Paul wrote to the Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, nor are there male and female, for you're all one in Christ. These are all first century categories of people. And they couldn't have been more different. All the, these groups, they, these are pairings of opposites that Paul gives us here. They would have despised the other. And now they're all together in this first century church trying to get along. And yet even after conversion, this is why... Paul is addressing this. They're sorting each other by category and belief and in-group and out-group and bickering with one another. And Paul says that as a new creation, we can't do that anymore. We cannot assess people according to worldly categories. Colossians 3.11, here, that is, in the church, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all. And is in all. In other words, our differences are no longer center stage. No longer our focus. Who is? Okay. You're afraid. It's always Jesus in church. The answer is always Jesus. I've told you that before. Looks like a squirrel, but I know it's church. It's got to be Jesus. The converted perspective of the new creation is the result of Jesus' presence in our life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. When we place our eyes on Christ, what, what does Paul say happens? We, as we contemplate God's glory, we are being transformed into his image, into the new creation, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And how did Jesus regard others who were different 
We have a glimpse of that in John 4. We often turn to this where Jesus surprises everyone by interacting with a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans were considered dirty by Orthodox Jews. In the first century, they considered them kind of like a mixed breed. It was, they were estranged from them. They didn't share their fundamental beliefs and values about how the world is to be. And here's the thing. The feeling was mutual. That's a natural human reaction. Even the disciples, Jesus' disciples, trained by him, living with him, walking with him, they're surprised that Jesus is, one, talking to an unknown woman, but two, who happened to be a part of this other religious ethnic group that they would have never interacted with. And you know, what that tells me is conversion is not a guarantee of this changing. It's not an immediate act, the work of grace, because the disciples were committed followers. They're, they weren't perfect, but they were committed followers. And many of you know the rest of the story. Jesus enters into this humble conversation with this woman at the well, and she realizes that he's the Messiah, and she even goes back to her village and tells others about this conversation. Why? It all began because Jesus did not regard her from a worldly point of view. It was a radical change of behavior in the first century. For Jesus to like publicly demonstrate that he sees her as someone who's created in God's image who needed to hear the good news. So what's that saying to all of us today? I mean, that's great, Britt. They had divisions back then. We got them too. And uh, they had conflicts back then. But what does that have to do with me and you? I hope that what I'm convincing you of right now is that the work of God in our hearts is to change our perspective of people. And I hope that you can see that God desires to change our hearts from regarding people from a worldly point of view to recognize each as Christ has. Now, you might say, Britt, how in the world is that going to happen in this day and time? I mean, this is especially hard for me because you don't know my neighbor. And... Uh, you don't know my experiences with that group or those people. You don't know what happens in my workplace and what I have to deal with. Some of you are struggling just to see your spouse as Christ does, right? Or your roommate. Right? You have no idea how hard it would be to do this on my campus. You have no idea how annoying this person is in my small group. And I don't see how I can do this when I'm so concerned about what's happening in the world today. You know, as Jed did last week, we, he, he used three postures as a launch pad to talk about how we can take the next step forward in this thing that Paul is teaching us here. The things that he's teaching us. And today specifically, how can we change our point of view of people? How can we go from viewing people from a worldly point of view to seeing them as Jesus does? Now, I'm going to ask you to stand. So consider this like seventh inning stretch. We're almost done. 
We're more than halfway. So if I've lost you, you're kind of waking up. Some of you aren't moving, so I think you were asleep. <laughs> um, so, so the first posture was to reach up toward God, right? So let's all reach up. Really reach up. Wave your hands. You guys are all charismatics now. Okay, then, then we're going to reach out, right? Stretch, stretch, stretch. Don't poke the person next to you. If you're thinking about asking her out, this is your chance, buddy. Um, and then probably the hardest one, right? This might be hard in the seats, but like stretch far down as far as you can. Go ahead. Oh, some groaning here. Okay, okay. Now try to get back up. Okay, sit down. Push-ups are next. So they say that the older we get, the more inflexible we get. Have you noticed that? Some of, I was groaning with you on the stretch of the toes. I can actually touch my toes, but I got to kind of warm up to it. Remember when that was so easy for you? Um, it's easy to get set in our ways and become inflexible as we grow older. And you know, here's the thing. Inflexibility leads to more inflexibility. We become less and less flexible because we're just not going to try it anymore. We're not going to stretch. So today I want to I use these three postures to talk about three qualities that are critical to becoming ambassadors of reconciliation, as Paul says here to getting to where we can regard others from a heavenly point of view. And the first one is about the stretch. And I, lo I love it that you guys groaned because this is going to make you groan, okay? So picture yourself stretching down to your toes when I say this. Experience the personal stretch of humility. Of humility. It seems to me, I don't know about you guys, but a good deal of this conflict that we're having today and the division we see in our world is, is fueled by the opposite of humility, which would be what? Pride, yeah. When we see the cruel words that people use to describe the other, it's pride that says another person's viewpoint is worthless. It's pride that tells us that God is for us only and of course, that means he's against them. And it's pride that says that a person is someone who God could never love. He only loves me. So they're my enemy. They're an enemy of God. Pride makes people enemies rather than the object of God's love. And I think that's what Paul was saying. He was getting to this in a sideways manner in his first letter to the Christians at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor men who have sex with men nor thieves nor greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you may not, like, you, some of you know this already, but in the first century, when, when an apostle would write a letter someone would take that letter to the community. So someone, most scholars think Titus took this letter to, um, to Corinth. And then they would gather the Christians together. Probably only had one copy. 
and they would read it. Just read the letter to them because they didn't have printing press. They couldn't give everyone their copy and say, take this PDF and read it and get back to me. There'll be a quiz later. So I'm sure, like I can just put myself in there. And the Christians at Corinth, which we know a lot about them, that they were divided and, you know, like not very nice to each other. When, when Titus is reading this, I can picture them going, yeah, that's right. You preach it, Paul. Bring it, brother. Give them two barrels. Because those are all losers you're talking about. They better turn or burn to get right or get left. Some of my old Baptists came out of me there. <laughs> and then he writes, check this out, verse 11. And that is what some of you were. Pause for dramatic point. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And don't you think they were like, uh, what? Paul's saying, yeah, you remember? You used to be that way too. That's what we thought about all of you before you became converted. See, we all have a past, right? Um, and for some of us, that past may not be so far in the past. Might have been yesterday or this morning. So Paul's saying, don't forget what God did for you. God says he hates pride, and the proud will fall. You feel that burn when you stretch? Have you, how many of you have ever used a foam roller? That's a new level of stretch, right? So if you've never used it, it's like you can, you can put this roller and put your weight on it to where like the most tight point. You can find it, and you can roll on it, and it's like, oh, it's right there, and then you just like, put that pressure on it. And if it's all going well, you'll feel this rush of release. The stretch of humility can really burn. But humility releases us from the need to feel superior. It releases us from the need to be right and resistance to conversation. It purges from us this toxicity to like, be part of our group and our group only and keep everybody else out. We must oppose those that are not in our group. It reverses the desire to demean other people who hold a different position. It doesn't mean that we, we agree. We're not agreeing with them, but it opens up our minds and our hearts to, to have dialogue and to hear ideas that could be totally different, total different solution, total different way of thinking about things. And it changes our disposition from thinking of someone as an enemy because we disagree. And it, 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 it changes our posture from that of a fighter to one of empathy and compassion. See, God invites us to stretch ourselves beyond what is comfortable so that we can be more like Jesus. You know, you will never recognize each as Christ has until you first humbled yourself. Which is not to judge yourself. It's not to like flagellate yourself. But to simply see yourself through God's eyes. And others as well. 
to see less of yourself and, to more, of, and more of Christ. So that's, that's the stretch of humility. Now we can reach outward through the work of God's grace. We reach toward others with the work of God's grace. Grace is described by some as unmerited favor. It's, it's undeserved favor. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul wrote, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And we talk about this often here. Um, no, no person ever born is so far from God that his love can't reach them. And no person is so righteous that they don't need God's mercy in their lives. The gospel is based on grace, not our performance, not, not, you know, like how righteous we can be, not by how many things we can quit or we can add. God saves us through his grace, unmerited favor. And if it's true that it's only by grace that we've been saved, doesn't it make sense that we should offer others the same? Or do we believe somewhere deep down in us that, um, that we are actually quite worthy of God's grace? And God was fortunate to get us on his team. See, grace allows a relationship to exist that without it, it couldn't. Grace, grace lets us stretch toward people. It, it doesn't mean there's not conflict or a difference. And some, some of that difference is righteous. And we're not supposed to change. But grace, you know, it's the lubricant of relationships. It means I can cut people slack. It means I can be patient. It means that I don't have to convince them. God can convince them. And I don't have to beat them down on the way to get them there. God offered me grace so that I can offer it to others and be a channel or a conduit of his grace in the world. Grace reminds us, like Paul said in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Last, to recognize each as Christ has, we can reach up through the hope of the gospel. We stretch ourselves by humbling ourselves. We allow God's grace to let us work through the friction we have with other human beings. But really, in the end, we're reaching toward God through the hope of his gospel. You know, the Bible doesn't refer to the condemnation of the gospel. It calls it the hope of the gospel. And Paul wrote that we're to continue to establish a firm faith. But in Colossians 1.23, he says, And do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Have we lost our hope in the gospel today? I fear we have. I feel like so many Christians today are looking at what's happening around us from a vantage point, um, not of hope and of the good news. And instead of being filled with hope, with the hope that the gospel gives us, not this world, but what, what God gives us, instead of being filled with hope, we're filled with fear and cynicism and distrust and despair. And the result is we, we can't even fathom that the outgroup is capable of receiving God's grace. When we regard others from a worldly point of view, 
we lose sight of the hope that God instilled in us through the gospel. 1 Peter 1.3, Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we remember this, we remember that we are not in a battle today of flesh and blood where if I don't prevail, all is lost. Therefore, every enemy that I see must be marginalized and defeated and even destroyed. See, through the hope of the gospel, we can envision a day where swords will be beaten into plowshares, as Isaiah said. And I, today, I want to remind you, Christian, of the hope of the gospel. But I also want to remind you of the power of the gospel. In Romans 1:16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, which, by the way, are two disparate groups. And Paul says the power of the gospel overcomes all of that. When we look up to the hope of the gospel, it isn't to be naive or Pollyannish or live in this latida fantasy. The hope of the gospel is resurrected in the res- it is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. And God can overcome any obstacle that anyone could ever throw up. Do you still believe that? Do you believe in the hope and the power of the gospel? Because that will change your perspective of why we're here. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And if you see your group, you're the outgroup in your mind, whoever that may be, uh, beyond the reach of the hope of the gospel, and um, you must battle people as your enemies constantly, then I say your God is little. Your God is weak. I want to close like Jed did last week with, um, he told you how our staff worked on our reach values. We sat together for months and kind of like, you know, talked with one another and eventually we just came up with these core values that we believe about reaching others for Christ. I'm going to put it up on the board. It says we value recognizing each as Christ has and we believe that how we see others impacts their view of how God sees them. Do you get that? Like the way we, as, as representatives of Jesus Christ in the world today, the way we see them will affect how they see God. And what I think God is calling us to do is to reject what this cultural thing that's happening to us where we see everyone as enemies and instead we see them as potential recipients of the hope of the gospel. And that changes what we do. The only way, the only way that will ever happen is if we stretch ourselves in humility, that we allow God's grace to like, just let us work it out. Let, let God take care of them. And then to remember that we have the hope and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many of you are sitting here today. You know, I was talking to someone last week. I'm sorry to keep you guys up here a little longer. And I'll be done in just a second. Um, I was talking to someone this week. And I really, you know, like I didn't grow up in the church. And uh, so like screw up godless. 
I was still awesome, but I was godless. <laughs> and uh, and I, I became Christian in 10th grade. And, and I hear people say, oh, you know, these kids, they're getting started so early. If I, could tell, if I told you the things I was doing in 5th and 6th grade, you'd be shocked. Some of you didn't do it till college. I was way ahead of my time. And then God came into my life and he saved me. And it's like, I've never, I mean, like, I'm not going to say I never. Like, it's easy to forget where we came from. It's easy to forget what we were doing last week. It, you know, God, you're sitting here, I'm up here babbling on because the hope of the gospel, God's power came into our lives and he changed us. And we can never forget that God gives us that opportunity every day. We no longer regard others from a worldly point of view. Let's stand and worship together. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.